Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Laura Ross, Associate Head of School at Harvard Westlake. In this episode, Laura speaks about helping to lead the school through a pandemic, and how now, watching students and teachers finally re enter physical spaces, experiencing the profound gratitude community members are conveying as a result. Laura also speaks about her upbringing in Santa Barbara, California, where school communities like Crane Country Day, Santa Barbara Middle School, and Santa Barbara High School, also my alma mater, influenced how Laura considers schools as families, as startups, and as multifaceted ecosystems where students should be given both the trust and the space in the day to find identity and passion. Laura also takes us through her long and varied career in schools, from working in college admission at Stanford, Scripps, and Columbia, to her independent schoolwork at Convent of the Sacred Heart in San Francisco, St. Stephen's Episcopal in Austin, and Green Hill in Dallas, before arriving at Harvard-Westlake in 2017 to run the upper school. Laura Ross on how to improve the systems that exist within schools to make us better. This is The Supporting Cast. Laura Ross, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. So I've been starting off each episode this season asking about the last 12, 13 months and how people have been enduring the pandemic. And now that kids are actually starting to come back to school, the word that I keep hearing is the word re-entry, re-entry into some kind of normal life. Now that many faculty and staff are vaccinated, many of our parents are vaccinated, many of our students are vaccinated and starting to re-enter into some kind of normal life. And so I'm curious, first, personally, how are you and Greg and your kids doing re-entering into pseudo-normal life? I think we've been doing great. I mean, everybody's so happy. The kids are so happy to be back on campus. For my seventh grade son, there was a little of the like, oh, but I stay in my jammies at home and I'm playing lots of video games and it's all comfortable. You know, it's like, I think he needed some pushing back out. Like he got in... And when he came to, he came home the first day and was just like on cloud nine, like just how great it was and meeting the kids he'd started to meet as a new seventh grader, you know, actually meeting them in person. And then our 10th grader, she couldn't wait, you know, she, there was no hesitation. She couldn't wait to get there. And it's been, it's been really nice. And, you know, I think for Greg meeting his kids in person, you know, and, um, and actually interacting in a classroom, you know, it's hard teaching with a mask on isn't the easiest thing in the world. Right. But at the same time, being able to read the body language and cues and things you couldn't do before saying it's kind of this trade-off, right? Like you can't see the facial expression, but you see all the body language. It's like a switch. Like you had one and not the other. And now you have the other one, which is really, yeah, but kind of the classroom dynamic. I talked to another teacher who was saying, just when you ask a question and you watch the way like people's bodies shift, like they'll like shift to a certain person who they think might say something or kind of someone will start to talk and you see another person's that was all missing, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. and it's those cues that teachers use. So sorry, I went off the personal into the 
and educator so mode. But that um, was going to be kind of my next question: okay. is how are kids re-entering at Harvard Westlake uh, and and teachers as well? Yeah, I mean, today I'm here with the seniors. They start to come every day for the rest of the school year next week. And I was just talking to a senior who has a seventh grade little sister who I know well, and she was also a little hesitant to go back to campus. Kind of the what if it's awkward? And he said to her you are going to be grateful for every single day you get to have on this campus. Like, so you need to go. Mm. Like, I'm a senior. Mm. I'm telling you, you will be grateful. And he said she went and had a great time and is now so happy to be back. But it was just so nice to hear, you know, one of our seniors say that to a yeah. little sibling. Like, trust me, you're going you're gonna to treasure every day you get to be on campus. That's so interesting. And that might that be a byproduct of this? We've thought that we might be more grateful for having this community when we haven't been able to have it yeah. in the same way. And yeah. I was on campus today as well, had an outdoor meeting with some colleagues that we had not had in over a year. And I walked by some students and students don't know me as well because I'm yeah. over at the middle school and I'm a, a, in the advancement office. But every student I walked past smiled and said hello, even if mm -hmm. they didn't know me. They're yeah. just felt a, there was a sense of happiness and gratitude kind of in the air. Yeah, it will be interesting, right? Like any disruption, how long it will last, what the permanent <laughs> yeah. changes will be, how do we work to ensure that what we've learned keeps some permanence? Yeah. You know, the thing about schools that are so interesting to work in is that you work on things and then every couple of years you have to start over because everybody, kids are gone, it's a new generation. And so once kids are gone who've been through this, like how do we ensure people continue to recognize what a how lucky we are to have this opportunity to be together in this place. Yeah. Just, I got an email actually from a, a senior, no, a junior today out of the blue that was just saying, thank you. You know, just a sort of a thank you email for, uh, you know, our work on DEI and anti-racism and our work to get kids back in the pandemic. And she said her church had hosted a, some sort of event. And, and she was just talking about how she was just so grateful and surprised that how happy she was to come back to Harvard. It was like other kids were saying, oh, I, you know, I don't want to come back for this reason, or this is really hard at my school, or this has been, she said, it's just unbridled joy to come back here, you know? Yeah. And she's like, I hadn't really thought about it because I forget sometimes that I'm at Harvard Westlake. And so I, I'm so lucky to have that. Yeah. yeah. So it's just a really, a really sweet, lovely, unsolicited email that I got today. You know, you mentioned our anti-racism work and DEI work and one thing we've also discovered over the past 13 months is that some people view these issues, these issues schools are wrestling with through the lens of partisanship or mm -hmm. their own politics. And that's true in all sorts of areas, not just schools and not just this work. Janine Jones has reiterated many times that this is not partisan work. This has to do with an actual school community, with actual school kids going through right. actual issues that we're trying to address and solve. Can you, in your own words, talk about Aside from the lens of partisanship, why do we do this work? Why is it so important? Well, I think, you know, it all comes back to our goal of having every student feel an equal sense of belonging at Harvard Westlake, right? And we have yeah. evidence that that has not always been the case and that it's our responsibility to try to ensure that that is the case for all of our students. And so think about the opportunities at Harvard Westlake are extraordinary. And we have to make sure that every student feels in a position to take advantage of those and feels like they are as much at home here as every other student. And that's not easy work. And I think also, as you said, in a national moment that is so polarized, when you really are talking about uncomfortable topics, about the ways in which our country has maybe not always lived up to its ideals and the ways that we could get better, Sure. Um, those are difficult topics, right? And we are we are one one school, right? It's one tiny microcosm of larger societal forces. 
you know, and so I think helping our kids kind of grow their understanding of what it's like to walk through the world in someone else's shoes, right? To understand that not all of us experience the world in the same way is really powerful. And really, I think those are skills that our kids have to learn when they think about going out into sort of multifaceted global workforce. And if they think about how to approach the problems, the pressing problems in the 21st century, it's not just, I mean, I think it is important, obviously, that our kids feel the sense of belonging, but it's also important skill building, right? To prepare our, every kid at Harvard-Westlake to be ready to take on the problems that many of which, sadly, our generation has left them with in a variety of ways. So it's, it's to me, it's, it's central to the work that all schools should be doing to ensure that this next generation is able to heal some of the divisions and the issues that we see around us. That said, it's also diversity, equity, and inclusion. And some people look at Harvard Westlake and say equity. <laughs> you know, Harvard Westlake is an incredibly fortunate place mm -hmm. to create extraordinary circumstances and an extraordinary environment for its students. You and I went to the same public high school. Yeah. Um, our high school experience was nowhere near the experience that Harvard Westlake students have in certain ways. And so how do we wrestle with the idea that we are trying to create degrees of equity on our campus while we are also acknowledging that we do have privileges sure. that not every other student has, particularly public school students. And I know you're going to teach a course next year yeah. on public education, so I'd love you, you to talk about that as well. Well, I think the goal, you're right, when I think about, say, for example, the piece that Caitlin Flanagan wrote for The Atlantic, there's yeah. a powerful argument to be made that it's true that independent schools in this country, right, replicate a lot of the sort of power dynamics and status quo. And you could make an argument that if you got rid of every independent school in the country, maybe it would help to be the catalyst that help our public education system get better, right? If every parent in America was in the same system, you know, which is, of course, a part of why the founding of public schools happened, right? The sort of the idea that to have an educated citizenry that they all should be invested, right, in this common, this common education system. And so that's not, you know, I, I think she's got a point there. But so then the question is, okay, but if that's not going to yeah. happen, right, if independent schools are going to continue to exist, we are a place because we draw these extraordinary kids and because Harvard-Westlake has the opportunity with our financial aid program and our reach in Los Angeles, and we draw the very best and brightest kids in the city of Los Angeles who are poised to be the difference makers in that next generation when they leave, right? So for us yeah. not to address issues of equity and inequity that we see in the world, and yeah. because I hope that our students are going to be in the position to be the kinds of people who go out to help solve those problems. That's what I was talking about before, right? So for yeah. us to say, oh, you know, we, you know, we have this great opportunity. And so we then are not going to talk about inequity as we see it and places where, because they're all going to leave Harvard Westlake, right? That's the whole point of being a college prep school is that they will leave yeah. us. So I think that that global argument has a point. I think that the question is, let's accept if that's not going to happen, then what's our responsibility to our students? Yeah. Uh, but now I'd like to get to you and your upbringing. You and I both grew up in Santa Barbara. Yeah. I know that Crane School in Santa Barbara was a huge part of your life. So could you describe a bit about Crane School and a bit about the experience there? Sure. So Crane is a um, pre-K through eighth, eighth grade school. And my father went to UC Santa Barbara and after law school and married my mother, they moved back to Santa Barbara. And my parents got involved. I'm actually not sure, I don't remember now kind of who the catalyst was who got them involved with Crane, but it was sort of a struggling K-8 school. And 
my father got involved as the invited to be the chair of the board at Crane, and mm-hmm. and my mother ended up being hired as the business manager. And there, my mother's closest high school friend's husband was hired as their head of school. Right? It was this sort of interesting moment of kind of every important person in my life was sort of involved in trying to save this school. It had a long historical legacy, but had been said struggling in the in the sixties and early 70s. And so I went there as a student, but it was more so it was our kind of home. You know, it was yeah. the teachers were all of my parents' friends. I was immersed in kind of what, uh, you know, I didn't know it at the time, right? I was in elementary school, but kind of all the conversations, you know, at events at my parents' house were about teaching and learning and community yeah. and schools and what they were for. It just it was always kind of in my brain what schools do and what independent schools are. And so that was my that was my first school and my first community and, and sort of foundation. Wow. And you went there for how many years? So I actually left after sixth grade. Again, you know, I, I now talk about and it was incredibly important to me, but I also my family was so involved in the school, I sort of wanted something that was mine, you know, sort of my own. And um, yeah. as you probably know, Eli, there was a brand new school started in Santa Barbara in the late seventies, early eighties called Santa Barbara Middle School. And it was That's designed right. to be an alternative Middle school, we spent, I forget how many months a year, um, but on bikes, riding around the American West, um, camping, cooking our own food, learning how to be independent. And so I think when I went there, there were maybe 70 kids in the whole school. And so I left Crane to go to Santa Barbara Middle School in its early years. We were, you know, in the, you know, rec room of the Unitarian Church across from Alice Keck Park, renting space. So it was, you know, and again, I feel like I couldn't have named it then, but I happened to be able to be a part of like, how do you start a school? How do you think of traditions and meaning and like what that school is for? And middle school was this just, I feel so grateful to have had this experience that was very non-traditional, but very, especially for middle school students having, you know, when you're riding 50 miles a day next to someone, you're not in that awkward, like, you know, what do I look like? It's sort of, you're, you're in it together, yeah. you know? So it was, uh, it was really powerful for me. That's interesting. Yeah. So Crane was this very stable environment, this real community, and you had people over at the house and it was teachers and administrators and you you were part of this ecosystem. And then at Santa Barbara Middle School, it was entrepreneurial, sort of, right? It was new. Yeah. Yeah. And it was mine, you know, it was kind of, Hmm. you know, it was my choice and my, and that's not my family. And, and then I ended up, I left to go to Santa Barbara High School in ninth grade. So then I went to the big public high school in Santa Barbara which was also, which are you in school? So you know it too, but yes. a totally different experience than both those first two. But, but equally, I had, a, I mean, I had a really positive high school experience. I loved my time at Santa Barbara High and, you know, I played soccer and I sang in the choir and I did student government. And I think I was able to build a lot of confidence from coming from these smaller places where I had a voice. And so it seemed very natural to me then to get to high school and, and be involved and, and have a voice. But there was a, um, a teacher that I really, I really liked. He taught this humanities course that was really, it was kind of the first intellectual experience I feel like I had in high school, like something that was like, yeah. oh, this is something different. This wasn't sort of a requirement. And so I invited him over to dinner at the house with my family, because of course, like teachers are always at our house. And um, my little brother, who was in ninth grade at the time, I think I was in 11th grade, was like, why is this happening? And the teacher said <laughs> I was the first student who'd ever invited he and his wife over to, to dinner. Wow. And again, it just sort of, it's, it didn't occur to me. Like, of course, there's a teacher I love. I wanted to come over. Like, that's, that's what happens in my household. So, you know, it's just kind of a funny, again, I realize how much it's all, you know, things you don't notice till later, like the trends, you know, that kind of being around educators has just always been my favorite thing. 
And you were head of the upper school before becoming now associate head of school. And is there something about the Santa Barbara High experience or you remembering your experience as a high school student that you think about when you know, your office is still in the upper school and thinking about kind of that age of adolescence? I do. I, you know, I think because, you know, and I was, like I said, I was involved, very involved at Santa Barbara High. Yeah. I think what I think about is how much I appreciated knowing adults and feeling trusted by them and kind of having agency mm-hmm. to, to have ideas and you know, and make change and how I also think how important my activities were to me, like how important soccer was to me, how important choir was to me. And so yeah. I think about that a lot in terms of what makes meaning in high school. You know, obviously the academics are critically important in the preparation, but it, it's sort of the whole package where you become, you develop into the person you're going to be, right? You start to get to have the chance to think about like what's meaningful to you. Where do you feel most alive? Where do you feel like your whole self? Yeah. Like where do you find your people? So that's always been really important to me when I think back and I think about now running schools, how important it is yeah. to think about the full package of what it is that kids get to experience and the ways they can find themselves. You're right. I mean, we find that with alumni of Harvard-Westlake yeah. is that the thing that draws them back or the thing that they still feel most connected to is the sports team they yeah. played on or the choir they were a part of or performing arts, a uh, performance that they were a part of as a student is part of what you're trying to do. And, and you're welcome to talk about it is to create more space for all of those things. So that if someone is an athlete and they're an artist and they want to kind of take advantage of the fullness of the Harvard Westlake experience, that there's actually room to do so. And that there's not this incredible pressure on their time all of the time to get all of these things done. I mean, with an eye toward college, I think Mm -hmm. some of it is that, but some of it is they're just so excited to take advantage of it all. And I know that you've taken with others many steps to try to, again, not ease the rigor because we're still a a place of rigor, but at least create more space in the day to find the joy in all these activities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what we recognized was that you know, schools show their what they value by their use of time. Like that's kind of all you mm. have, right? How do you use right, time? Right. Is really it's good, you know. And kids have a short amount of time that they're in school, and so what we recognized when we started doing research on kind of on the upper school schedule and the experience of upper school students was that it was structured in this way where you know every kid had a, an entirely different schedule. They had all these classes every day. Every class met almost every day, right? And so they were sort of moving like little individual frantic robots, like through their own little, you know, puzzle pieces through the day. There was never a time where they were all together as a community, right? There wasn't a time to talk about important issues in the world. There also wasn't, you know, there weren't common lunches or breaks. And the way the day was structured led to so much homework each night because you have deliverables each morning that everything you chose to do outside of your academics felt like a burden, you know, because the fact that you had a basketball game or a play rehearsal there was no fit. You had every class that was meeting the next day, right? So you had to get what's done the next day. And so we recognized that we were forcing kids to make choices that both didn't allow them to be their full set, right? Find the things they loved. And it was counterproductive in terms of college because, of course, the things that make kids interesting college applicants are the people who have developed a sense of who they are in the world and what they want to do, right? And so... right, right especially now with the potential diminishment of the SAT. Yes, exactly. Those other, those other pieces of the application. It used to be to that be, like if you took five APs right. and you had a high SAT score, like it equaled X. That's and right. that, 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 those days are completely gone, right? And we had to be ready to transition to something that allowed our kids to build those other parts of themselves. It's one of, you know, the college process is such a, there's so many negatives and so many things about the, what it's become in this country, you know, and, and the sort of 
insidious influence of things like U.S. News World Report and rankings. But the good thing mm -hmm. is that the sort of reality is that what actually makes kids compelling applicants are actually things that make them whole, happy humans, right? Like when you read, you know, as a former college admissions officer for so many years, yes. like when you read a file where you're like, that's someone who has some sense of who they are and what they love, right? And are able to have been yeah. able to have the opportunity to explore those things. That's so much more compelling than like, oh, this kid took the exact same curriculum that I just read 200 kids in, you know, a public school in New Jersey, <laughs> taking the exact same class and doing the exact same things. And with no sense that there's something that brings them joy, that they understand, that they love, that they can articulate. So that's actually the piece that it's hard for people to wrap their minds around. I think sort of that sense, it's easier if you think there's a formula, right? You take X, Y, and Z, yeah. you score X, Y, and Z, you get X, Y, and Z. And so I think that's unsettling. But in the end, the changes we made, we think are both healthy for kids and <laughs> have the added advantage of helping them continue to stay competitive for the top colleges as they evolve the kinds of ways they're looking for kids. Yeah. And that's where Harvard Westlake can be such an incredible place because yeah. someone can take five, six APs anywhere. Yeah. There were lots of AP classes at Santa Barbara High School yep. that, that people can take. What's unique about Harvard Westlake are things like the Cutler Center and, yes. and other places where you can take unique types of courses that may lead you to have a depth of experience and interest that that makes you a much more interesting applicant. And we had, I mean, and that's what we had been struck, we had been incentivizing kids to not make those choices, right? Because when right, you weigh right. the GPA or you don't have a little on APs, of course, every kid thinks, well, then I have to, I have to do the max. I've got to give up orchestra because I need to take this AP I'm not interested in because it'll raise my GPA. Or I can't take a Cutler Center class because it's not AP, you know? And so again, we recognize yeah. we have to make structural changes to help kids make the choices that will help them, again, grow as people, as intellectuals, and help them in the college admissions process. And so, you know, and, and having implemented it, of course, in the pandemic year where they're remote, the feedback we've gotten from the upper school students is so positive, even in that way that we think, oh my gosh, I can't wait till next year when, you know, when they're actually living it in person and that they now feel like they have more opportunity to really dig in deep during a class period, your transitions in a day, and just that sense that every night doesn't feel like such a grind. You know, those two things by themselves. And for teachers, frankly, they have fewer classes to prep for each night, right? And so they're able to have yep. more time to be creative in their, what they do in the classroom, to be able to meet with kids. You know, it, it works. Honestly, it's, it's positive in both for adults and for kids. So after Santa Barbara High School, you attend Wesleyan. Mm -hmm. And what was that experience? And I should mention, you're now a trustee at Wesleyan. I am. As well. Yeah. So, so I was a soccer player at Santa Barbara High, and both my parents had gone to UC schools, you know, and so we didn't have really any experience, you know, with sort of liberal arts colleges on the East Coast. But I, you know, my parents were incredibly supportive of me looking at, at something different, and I wanted to keep playing soccer, and I knew I couldn't play at a D1 school. And and so we went to the East Coast to visit schools, and I love to tell the story because it's all about so much of the college process is kind of about chance and finding something. And the sure. librarian at the school at Crane, her husband had just gotten his PhD at UCSB, and they, he had gotten a job at Wesleyan. And so my parents said, hmm. you know, while we're on the East Coast visiting schools that we had heard of, you know, we didn't really know anything, let's go visit Rob to see how he's doing. And I walked onto the Wesleyan campus and just fell in love with it and was lucky enough mm. to be admitted and be able to play soccer there. And, and so it, you know, but I never would have found, I never would have found it if I like it, cause we didn't, you know, I didn't, Santa Barbara High, you know, didn't have, not many kids went to liberal arts colleges on the East coast. You know, I don't, 
Um, right. You know, I didn't hear about it from my college counselor or, you know, my college counselor, who was a wonderful woman, but said to me out loud, basically half of my caseload, I'm worried about them dropping out. I'll send the forms you need, but kind of said to me, I don't really have the time, you know, to help yeah. you and, you know, couldn't. And I mean that in the, the nice, it was not a criticism of her, but it was the reality of what she was dealing with. You know, I feel so lucky that I found Wesleyan. And the, the funny part is of that story so that Professor Rob Rosenthal, the friend of my family, he ended up becoming yeah. the provost at Wesleyan. And so we ended up, my first year on the board was the year before he retired. And so we actually ended up getting to serve together. Like he was, you know, at wow. board meetings. And, huh. you know, he was the reason I came to Wesleyan all those years ago, which was such a cool full circle. And would you see him on campus? Yeah, uh, yeah. During those years yeah. as well? And so we would see, you know, we would be at board meetings. And I mean, certainly when You'd I was You'd invite at, him to dinner in the dorm yes, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> when I was at Wesleyan, we, you know, they were kind of my second, definitely he and his wife were my second parents kind of on, on campus. More like they would show up at my door at like noon on a Saturday and I'd still be asleep, you know. At, at the right. Right. <laughs> so yeah, so we, we stayed close all these years. And I should mention last week's guest on the supporting cast, D.B. Weiss, also went to Wesleyan. And you and I were talking about this before we got on. And it turns out you were classmates I know, at Wesleyan. To, I know. I'll have to look him up. I, yeah, I didn't know that. I mean, Wesleyan, luckily, it's, it's bigger than your kind of traditional liberal arts college, which was one thing yeah. I loved about it because you know, I was continually meeting new, new people each year. And you know, I was very, very grateful for that. So then from there, after Wesleyan, where did you go from there? So I went to Washington, D.C. first, and that, again, was kind of chance. I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I majored in religion, um, and I was interested mm -hmm. in a lot about East Asian religions. And actually, my senior year, my senior work was on the role of black churches in South Africa in the apartheid, anti-apartheid movement. Huh. Like I was interested in kind of wow. religion and society and the ways human beings made meaning in the world and kind of different belief systems. So I didn't have a major that really led to like, unless I want to go get a PhD, like some particular career. Yeah. And I remember so clearly I sang in the gospel choir at Wesleyan, which is called Ebony Singers. And a, a girl sat down next to me one day at rehearsal, you know, in like October and was like, oh my gosh, I just got a job. She, of course, was in the, you know, the pre-finance and was going to work on Wall Street. And I was like, how, how, how does that even happen? Yeah. And I realized yeah. I didn't really have much of a plan. And I had a couple of friends who graduated before me who called and said, hey, we're getting a group house together in D.C. We've got a spare room. You know, we've got the, the closet, basically. The spare room is free if you want to come move here. And I was like, okay, why not? I don't, you know, D.C. sounds great. And so I uh, was luckily able to get a job as the assistant to a woman who did um, political consulting and events for nonprofit groups. And so my very first job was organizing a reunion for an organization called the Veteran Feminists of America. And so wow. we were an interesting tough group of women to work for. They were great. I, I mean, you know, so I just, I just, you know, I worked as this woman's assistant for a couple of years and just, and did, like I said, organized events and helped do consulting for nonprofits and mostly just, you know, lived, you know, there's a whole great big group of Wesleyan people living in DC. And so just, you know, it was a great place to be in your twenties without a lot of money and people were doing interesting things. And, you know, I did that for a couple of years, but I recognized pretty quickly that I felt like the work being done in DC, while important, it didn't really speak to me because it wasn't in a community. You know, it was like mm. you're helping people, like you're helping fundraise for a cause. But, you know, I think now when I think back to sort of my childhood, like at schools or communities, you know, I was like, I want to be someplace. Right. I want to do something where you're in a community and, and whatever you're doing, you're helping people in front of you instead of at a distance. And so I applied to grad school and got accepted. I went to Stanford and my master's is in 
higher education administration and student affairs because I thought going in I wanted to work I thought I wanted to be a dean of students on a college campus that was actually kind of my mm. first thought mm. and you know kind of thinking about how you build community in a college setting and then I got to Stanford and I remember one of our first seminars it was a tiny it was a great program there was only 13 of us and one of our first seminars the dean of students came in to talk about his job and he finished and I was like oh I don't think I will. We all had to work half time somewhere in the administration. That was kind of the cool thing about this master's. It was applied and theoretical. And so I went and interviewed a bunch of different places on campus and uh, had an interview in the undergraduate admissions office with someone named Jim Mm. Montoya, who became sort of a mentor to me as he was to many in this field. And we interviewed for, I don't know, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And he said, admissions is a place for you and offered me a job. And so I got to work in the undergraduate admissions office for that year, learning the field and the trade and, um, and just loved it. So that was my, that was my first career. It's funny, Sharon Cusio has a similar story yes. about being a student at Stanford and doing work study in the admission office yep. and suddenly, and what did you enjoy about it? What was appealing about it in the way that working in DC wasn't? So I, again, I felt like, okay, I can be on a college campus, but I loved talking to teenagers as they were trying to figure out what they wanted to do and be, you know, I realized mm. that like, getting to travel around the country and go to different high schools and meet kids and talk about, you know, your school and what it might have to offer and see if it was a good fit. Like, I just found that I loved all those conversations and I loved reading applications and figuring out, like, how do you put a class together? How do you try to figure out if someone is a good fit for your school, is ready to succeed? What are all the considerations? I just found that work really really fascinating and compelling. And so that's how I started and kind of what got me interested in admissions. And then I went to work at Scripps College in Claremont in the college, in the admission, mm. undergraduate admissions there. And then, but that was, so that was my first tour in LA. I lived in Pasadena and I was sort of miserable. Like again, having lived, you know, you live in a big group house after college and you go to grad school and I'm living in a, you know, a tiny apartment in Pasadena. I was traveling four months a year didn't know anybody yeah. in LA. All the people in LA were, I guess, like D.B. Weiss, like in the entertainment industry. They lived on the West Side. Like I didn't, you know, <laughs> that was yep. not my yep. world. But I had a lot of friends in San Francisco and I applied for a job as director of college counseling at Convent of the Sacred Heart High School in San Francisco and was lucky enough to get hired and to teach. I also I taught social ethics. So it kind of was the first time I got to bring my religion major back. I taught, um, I got to start teaching and being director wow. of college counseling. That's an all-girls school? Is it's that right? an all-girls school. There's a network of Sacred Heart schools around the country, really wonderful, wonderful schools. And those nuns were really good at real estate. So it was in this gorgeous mansion in Pacific Heights called (laughs) the Flood Mansion. So so I moved to San Francisco. And then once I got to working at Convent, I recognized very quickly, oh, wait, this is even better than admissions because now I'm in it with these kids and their families and trying to help them figure out what do I want, right? I'm not just repping one school. I get to be, you know, in the work with the kids and families. And so... I realized that being on the high school side, and again, in college admissions, like, you know, you, you recruit these kids, you read their applications, you fall in love with them, and then they break your heart, right? And like, go somewhere, yeah. <laughs> and they go somewhere else. And you don't always stay as connected to them. And you don't you always might. stay as connected, because then right. you have to go recruit the next class, right? They all arrive, exactly. and you leave to recruit, right? So I just realized that, like, that sense of community, I had always sort of, again, putting it all together now, later, I think I was seeking, I was like, oh, in, in, independent, in schools, you can find that. So I went to the college counseling side, though then I took a detour back to admissions. I went to worked at Columbia in the admissions office for five years, partially because my then boyfriend, now husband, Greg, who teaches at Harvard Westlake mm-hmm. as well, was living in New York. Um, we both went to Wesleyan and I was in San Francisco. And 
when I applied for jobs in New York, I ended up getting hired at Columbia. So I went back to the admission side, which again, I loved. I loved hmm. Columbia. I loved that office. I learned so much. But once we then, our oldest child was born while we were living in New York, and I recognized that I wanted to be back in a kind of more, uh, a smaller a high school environment, a more tight-knit community. And so you and Greg met at Wesleyan when you were undergrads and you stayed together that whole no, time? Did you, no, did you no, connect? no. He did you was connect a senior later? when I was a freshman at Wesleyan. So we actually didn't really know each other, but we had a bunch of friends uh-huh. in the middle. And so he lived in D.C. when I lived in D.C., but then... He got his MBA at UCLA while I was out at Stanford. We were just friends. We just stayed yeah, friends yeah. and we didn't start dating until 1998. So a long time after college, but we just, the Wesleyan, Wesleyan mafia is strong, as they call it. There's, you know, yeah. we, we are a lot of really close, close knit friends. So that's how we knew each other. And so you were at Columbia for five years doing college admission yeah. and, and you, you had a child. And so you're thinking, I want to go back into the independent school. And World. Greg had been working in the entertainment industry, which was where he had always worked. And then he had a sort of revelation that he wanted something different. And so he actually left the entertainment industry and became a, a math teacher. And mm. so we realized that Hughes was now a teacher. I could work in a school. And so we could also create a life for our family where we might we have more time to be parents and work. So having more flexibility in the summers, being on the academic calendar. And so we ended up moving to Austin, Texas and taking a job at St. Stephen's Episcopal School in Austin, which is a boarding and day school. Greg, my husband, went to boarding school and we loved the idea of raising our kids on a boarding school campus, which is kind of like a commune. You know, everybody, all the boarding faculty living together, raising their kids together. And so we were there for seven years. We were, both of us, dorm parents, coaches. I mean, all, when you work in a boarding school, like you do everything, advisors, I taught a religion class to seniors. I I created a new class called Creating Effective Social Change. So I got to start learning what it was like to create academic classes. And I was director of college counseling. So we we stayed there a long time. And so is it from there that you went to Green Hill? Yes. So then I was, when I was at St. Stephen's doing college counseling, so I've now been doing admissions and college counseling for a total of, I think, 17 years. And I sort of hit this point where I felt like, gosh, I love college counseling But I realized when I would talk to other faculty at St. Stephen's, the conversations I love to have were like, like, how do we advise kids to take this class versus this class? And like, how is this program structured? And why is this this way? Like, I was interested in bigger issues of schools and how they ran versus kind of my little piece of the world in college counseling, which I loved. But I started to want to, like, kids would come to me at a certain point with kind of their lives already set. And I was interested in like, well, how did you make that choice? Or like, what, you know, why do we offer this program and not that program? And so I was lucky enough to be invited to apply to become head of upper school at Green Hill in Dallas and interviewed and and got the job and was like, you know, oh my gosh, like, here's my chance to really try to learn how to run a school, like all the, you know, all the things. And so we loved Austin. We had thought we never wanted to leave Austin, Texas. Austin is an incredible city and Dallas was not high on my bucket list of places I ever thought I would live, but we just had this great opportunity. It turned out, again, to be wonderful. Green Hill's a a really special school, and we both worked there, and our kids went to school there, and we were there for five years. And so then the the job at (laughs) Harvard-Westlake comes up. Not only an opportunity for you, but there there was an opportunity for Greg to teach math as well uh, at the middle school. What was it about Harvard-Westlake, the opportunity here? Obviously, it's near where you grew up, sort of. Uh, it's back in Southern California. But what was it about Harvard Westlake that, that drew you here? It sounded like you had built such a wonderful life and community in, in Austin and Dallas. Yeah, we, you know, it was, uh, I used to read the applications for Harvard Westlake in Columbia. So I, so I knew it as an admissions officer, um, you know, had visited uh, out here yeah. a long time. 
And I have to say, I was very hesitant at first. Like I felt like knowing Harvard Wesley from the outside, I thought, well, that's a place that's like, you know, kind of just this academic achievement machine. They're not going to be a place that's interested in like how to get better. They're at the top of their market. You know, I kind of had the sort of external, you know, yeah. prejudices of, of Harvard Westlake. And then when I came to interview, I was just so struck by how everybody, everybody who worked here just kept saying, yes, we're so proud of this, but like, we always want to get better. Like, this is what we're interested in next. Like, here's how we want hmm. to grow and be better. And I thought, wow, actually, this is different than I thought it would be. And, you know, obviously moving back home to Southern California felt it was appealing to, you know, I think Greg had gotten his MBA at UCLA, so he had lived here and liked LA. Right, and right. I think that was, yeah, that was appealing to us. But I really, in the education world, like being at a school that's a good match for you is so critical. I, you know, I wasn't going to come unless I felt like this is a place where I can, where I'm a good fit, you know, where the kinds of ways I think about education, you know, are going to be a good fit with the mission of the school. And meeting Rick and meeting the team, I just felt like, okay, this just seems like an incredible, an incredible opportunity to, you know, given that that time Harvard Wilson was having those questions, right, about like, yeah. how do we evolve to be serve the next generation of kids? How do we make sure that we are continuing to be the best that we, that's all the stuff I already loved and cared about. So it felt like maybe I could be the right person to help them continue to evolve. So that's why I came. I know when Rick Commons was hired, I went, was able to go to a lunch with him with some top volunteers and people were asking him, what are the type of changes you want to make at the school? And I think any new head is not going to go on and yeah. on about all the things they want to change about a school. That's an unwise thing to do. But the, the one thing I do remember him saying is, I want kids to love it. Mm -hmm. And not that, that there aren't kids that, that didn't love Harvard-Westlake, but there was this sense, and I think some of the surveying we've done has bore this out, that people have appreciated their Harvard-Westlake yeah. experience. And they say, man, I was so prepared for college. Man, I was so prepared for the working world. I'm a step above my peers. I so appreciate that. But did they love the yeah. experience? And that was something he was hoping to bring, and he hadn't laid out exactly how. But it does feel like with how you think about the school experience, particularly for upper school kids, but now the entire community, that you were probably like-minded with Rick on that opinion and were probably eager to help see that through. Absolutely. I mean, I think Rick, I forget if someone had said this to him, right, that Harvard Westlake was a great place to be from, but not always a great place to be. That's right. And I think we're very unified in both that we both feel like you know, school shouldn't have to hurt all the time to be great, right? Like, and that actually you can destroy sort of that sense of love for learning, right? Like when kids feel like they're just on a treadmill, right? It can, it can defeat the purpose, right? We have these incredible teachers and these big broad curriculum and ways to inspire kids. And kids felt like, I see all this great stuff, right? Like I know that Harvard Westlake has it, but I'm not feeling that joy, right? Because I feel like I'm just in this, like I said, on this sort of, achievement treadmill and so we thought there's got to be like like I said we knew you know and Rick you know also used to you know he was a college counselor like we both knew from our own professional experience that the world had changed and we knew that we weren't probably going to be doing right for kids in the college admissions process and that we had to change the culture here to fit where the world was going and we felt like we knew that it was better for kids in the way that they to become again have the opportunity to really grow into themselves in ways that didn't but they didn't feel beaten down by the time they got to college. Yeah. So it just, yeah, it's a, it was a really good working with Rick. I think we think we see the world differently in lots of really important ways. Like it would be probably dangerous if both of us, you know, really thought exactly the same, but we are both driven by our belief that like Harvard Westlake and what, what a top school should be is a place that certainly pushes you beyond what you think you can do, but also 
help support you in all of the parts of who you are in high school such that you become a confident person across all of that. And so that's, I think, what we both believe that kind of to our core as educators. And so, you know, I think that's helped us. And, and obviously, we have an incredible team. I mean, you know that. You're part of it. You know, we, the teachers and, and faculty and staff here, I mean, I, I always like to say that, like, you can't bring your B game at Harvard Westlake because, like, everyone around you is bringing their A game all over the place, you know? And that's it's true. That's really inspiring, you know? Like, it's... And um, that's the DNA, by the way, I should mention, that, that hasn't changed. I mean, that, that was no. there prior to your arrival. And I know I, I interviewed... Tom Hudnut, and we talk yeah. about the culture changing and so forth. And I don't mean to say that the culture before wasn't adequate, but that DNA yeah. of people bringing their A game was something exactly. that, that Tom helped to instill and that has been here for a long time. A hundred percent. I mean, that was sort of, and that's where I think when we were making changes, people got nervous. Are you changing sort of the DNA right. of the school, right? And that's right. what, that's we what people love too. I mean, part of yeah. loving, part of why employees love yeah. the place is because you look around and everyone is working so hard yeah. and bringing their A game. And while you might think that could be intimidating or suffocating, yeah. it can actually be energizing yes. and inspiring. Yeah. And so it's a question of how do you, how do you do that in a way that truly allows kids, Harvard Westlake, it's not made for everyone. Right. And that's, you know, we, we we're lucky enough to be in a city where there's lots of choices. Right. And it's made for kids that really are like, I love learning and I like, I want to go find some things I love. Right. You know? And yeah. so, so it's a question of how do you help support them in that and help them figure out how to develop that in ways that, you know, it would be a shame if Harvard Westlake was just easy, right? Like if it's easy, then anyone can do it. Like the whole point of Harvard Westlake is like, we're going to help you see that you can be more than even you think you can be. Yeah. You know, that's that, like you said, that is woven in the DA from the founding. And that's, you know, and that's, that's incredibly important to this place. So now you were head of upper school for several years, and that was a broader role from when you were a college counselor. Now you've moved into an even broader role, which is associate head of school. So before we get to some kind of get to know you questions, what are you most excited about in this new role, taking an even broader view of the entire school, not just both campuses, but faculty and staff and students and taking kind of the broader view of the school as a whole? I feel like this is my dream job, like the job I was made for. I, I you know, I, ah. I feel so lucky to have it. Why is that? Because my charge is how do we, looking at our program and our adults and the way we design the curriculum, the way we support our teachers, like how do you ensure that you create something as a school that is the best it can be to serve the quality of kids that we have? And so when you're in a division head role, it's a, a more reactive job. Like you're always, sure. there are things, issues that come up. You're always kind of it's trying to solve. It's a difficult Yeah, job. kind of solve problems. As, and not that I don't solve problems, but I, 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 I now this job is much more kind of long, big picture, right? Like, what do we think about our hiring process? Like, do we, like, are there ways we can make it better? Like, what do we think about um, the sequence of science courses? That's stuff that I find tremendously interesting. And I feel so lucky that I get to think about how to make the school better. And again, to be surrounded by this faculty and staff that are excited to do that, that are also thinking that too, that's just a real luxury. So I think I'm just most excited about, you know, when we're back, you know, obviously starting the job in the midst of the pandemic and that became a full-time job for all of us. So I feel like once we're back next year, able to kind of really think, you know, we, at the fireside chat, we talked about kind of the progress we've made in our visions, you know, that Rick set or helped yep. to create when he came in. So we're now at that point where we get 
about this great moment in the school's history. Like, okay, what are our next, you know, what are the yeah, next five those years Those were like? visions for 2020 and it's now 2021. It's 2021, exactly. So I feel like I, I'm going into this job at a really exciting moment, right? Because we're going to start as a community to think about how have we made progress, you know, on those goals? What do we want to continue working toward? Are there new goals we want to set? So I'm most excited about coming into this job at that moment. I should also add, we just hired a director of institutional research, yes. which I think kind of uh, along this line is probably going to be integral to your role in that we'll be able to actually measure the progress we are making yes. or, or aspiring to make in all these areas. Well, and I, you know, I say this all the time too, right? That one of my favorite phrases is that there's no room for hope in schools. And what I mean by that is mm. you can't just hope it's all working, right? Like yeah. you need to be thinking in schools, like, well, what are the metrics we're using? Like when we design programs, we make change, we do things, how are we measuring how they're working? I am a, an idea person and I love to think about systems and structures, but I, I need help and support, right? By someone who, you know, loves to think about the data and the processes and how we collect things and how do we use that to ensure growth and strength over time. So to get that going, and we just hired a new person who I'm really excited about. So that I think that that's going to really help us continue to get better. To finish up, we have a few get to know you questions. They relate to Los Angeles, where you and Greg and your two kids now live. They relate to film, to food, and to climate, which are all areas that Los Angeles is known for. So first question, what is Laura Ross's favorite movie? I mean, not that I don't, I mean, is it like heresy in LA to say I'm not, I'm, I'm more of a book and music person, you know, so. You know what? We have a lot of music. Let's go there. We have a lot of music industry in okay. Los Angeles as well. Who's your favorite artist? So my favorite artist is a singer-songwriter named Jason Isbell. Oh, you yeah. You know, who's a, um, he was at the lead singer band called The Drive-By Truckers and is now a solo artist. And I just think one of the best storytellers and songwriters of our time. There's a song called Elephant mm -hmm. that he does, right? Which is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And his wife, Amanda Shires, is also an incredible musician in her own right. She's a fiddle player and she's in a country women super group called The High Women. So mm. she's amazing too. But, um, and if they, they tour live. So he's my favorite. Secondly, what's your favorite meal in Los Angeles? It could be out at a restaurant. Is there a restaurant that you and Greg like or something you make at home? There's sort of two, you know, in our neighborhood, we love to go to Casa Vega, you know, which is like old school yeah. Mexican red boots, like been there forever, no windows, obviously yep. not really been there since the pandemic, not really pandemic friendly, but like that's around the corner from us. And that's kind of like our family comfort food, you know, if we're just going to go out around the corner as a family. And then our favorite special occasion place is Redbird downtown, which is owned by friends of ours. That's, you know, in yes, the old, I've been there, yeah. Yeah, deconsecrated Catholic Diocese of Los Angeles. So it's just, it's beautiful and the food is. is incredible. I mean, it's a, it's a special occasion place, but it's, that's my favorite. Thirdly, what's your favorite place in LA? Could be a part of town or a street or. I really, I think Griffith Park is probably, I think one of the most beautiful. Mm. I mean, what a treasure to have that in the city, you know, like I, we, I like to hike a lot. And so, you know, I think Griffith Park is, is pretty amazing, but I also just love walking in our neighborhood, like, you know, out in Studio City, Sherman Oaks, like taking long walks in the, in the neighborhood. I love to look at houses, you know, so if I'm going kind of full park, I like Griffith Park or just the hills of Sherman Oaks are pretty nice too. Lastly, I am a parent, as you know, I have a two and a half year old little girl and we have another little girl on the way. You are the parent of two kids at Harvard Westlake. My last question that I ask everyone is, what is your best parenting advice? Either that has been given to you sure. or that you have as an original for me. 
I think for, for me, accepting your kids for the kind of people they are, right, and letting them grow into the people that they are meant to be, you know, I think just that they come out who they are. Um, you know, you'll see with your two and a half year old, there's things you're going to see now that later you're going to be like, oh my gosh, we saw that, you know, that was there from the time she was little. And I think kind of respecting, respecting that because then they, I think they can grow into sort of confident, interested people. Like I found that when I try to impose sort of the like, oh, wouldn't you like this or shouldn't, and not that we shouldn't push them sometimes to like get them over a hurdle where it's like, you know, I think they would like this and try to build their confidence. But in the end, kind of respecting that they are their own individuals. And it's not, it's my job to help prepare them to become thriving adults. It's not my job to put them into some kind of box that I want them to be in. So that to me, I think is what most guides my parenting. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for the time and for the wisdom and for all you're doing to create an even better Harbor Westlake community for faculty, staff, and for students. Thank you. I'm, I'm so grateful and lucky to be here, so I appreciate it. Thanks for joining the supporting cast.